You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thank you for listening to the Tech Tank Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, co-host of the podcast with my colleague and friend, Dr. Daryl West. Listen, today we are talking about computer science education. In this technological age, workforce demands for computer science skills have evolved and they keep evolving. The demand for computer science specialists have evolved across all fields, improving job and compensation prospects, for those with experience in programming and data science. And in turn, states, they've worked to incorporate computer science into the K-12 public curriculum to better prepare students for the workforce of the future. And we all know we need to figure out how to place students in many of these vacancies that are going to be integral to the success of our economy. The deployment of equitable policies, as well as the evaluation of the continued expansion of CS education is why we're here today. But I'm going to tell you, it's not an easy topic because there are existing workforce disparities, particularly among underrepresented marginalized groups such as Black, Brown, and Native populations who suffer unequal access to digital literacy and computer science education in the schools that they are in. So this in turn perpetuates systemic inequalities, my friends, and that's why we're having this conversation As we continue to see everything migrate online towards digital with emerging technologies prime and center, how are we going to make sure that computer science education is important? I'm really excited today because I'm joined by three guests. One of them happens to be my colleague, and the other one, a colleague that I've known for a long time, and the third one, I'm just getting to know him, but he's also a colleague at the Brookings Institution. First and foremost, I want to welcome two folks that are actually going to talk about some new research that they put out. They have a report calling Exploring the State of Computer Science Education Amid Rapid Policy Expansion, published April 11th under the Brown Center at Brookings. That is Dr. Michael Hansen, Senior Fellow at the Brown Center on Education Policy and the Herman and George R. Brown Chair of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. Nicholas Urbino, Research Analyst at the Brown Center on Educational Policy at the Brookings Institution and Dr. Kim Scott, Professor of Women and Gender Studies and the School of Social Transformation at Arizona State University and the founding executive director of ASU Center for Gender Equity in Science and Technology, of which I'm a non-resident fellow. Together, let's discuss the future of computer science education in that recently released report. Thank you for joining me, Mike, Nico, and Kim. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, thank you, Nicole. This is a great opportunity. Thank you. Hello. It's great to be here. Oh, thank you so much, Nico. So let's jump right into it. Mike, let's start with you and Nico around your new paper on CS education in the U.S. Help us better contextualize the importance of CS education in our modern day economy and in what ways we can better improve it so we can also improve upon student welfare and career prospects. So let's just jump right into it. Absolutely, Nicole. And so where we should start is that countries that invest in technology, 
they tend to have a comparative advantage in future growth in the 21st century economy. This growth creates jobs, not just in the technology sector, but also in many adjacent fields that support those in technology. So technology is seen as a fuel for growth moving into the future. Now, of course, computer science education is seen as a way to make that growth sustainable by ensuring a pipeline of talent to help fill those jobs that are being created. But beyond the direct benefit to those who are working in technological fields, CS education benefits all students. First, many fields beyond those in tech are becoming increasingly reliant on data and analytics, which means that fundamental CS skills, these are a skill set beneficial for workers across many professions, whether you go into retail, management, various STEM fields. And so these it touches many different areas now in our economy. Also, computer science education It consists of a unique set of pedagogies and practices around computational thinking, and these instructional practices develop more generalizable skills, including logic, planning, collaboration, and executive function that other academic subjects do not cover as explicitly. So it has a really unique perch as an academic field as well. So Mike, that's really interesting. I want to pivot over then to Nico, knowing this. How are states and K-12 institutions working to strengthen and build on their curricula, Nico? And how are they working to expand access for students? Tell us a little bit more about that and maybe a little bit more about some of the state of computer science education reports and what they found. Sure. So the state of CS reports, they're authored by a consortium of CS education nonprofits and advocacy groups. Such uh, and the three groups that are that 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 put them out are Code.org, the Computer Science Teachers Association, and Expanding Computing Education Pathways. They've been releasing these reports since 2017, and they provide an overview of the policies related to CS education that states have been implementing, and they track them, and they also give us a look at the equity and access in the field of CS education. And a little bit in the question that you asked, we have on one hand, expanding access to a, to CS classes and offering them in schools. And on the other hand, creating state learning standards in CS to set common expectations for students across grades. And these reports show us that there's been a lot of action since 2017. Back then, Arkansas was the lone in CS education and in policy implementation. And most other states had very few of these policies implemented. Now, only five years later, the most recent report shows that 41 states have implemented state standards, and there's something, practice can still lag a little behind because only 50% of high schools offer CS, despite many states having requirements for high schools to offer them. So when we look at this particular policy requiring high schools to offer CS, when we look at the across different policy regimes, i.e. having this policy in place or in process of implementation, the difference in the percentage of high schools that are offering CS aren't very big. And to just drive this, this point home that policies are imperfect proxies of practice, within the group of states that have not implemented this policy to require computer science courses in high school, we have Rhode Island and Massachusetts, where over 80% of their schools have a CS course of 
uh, some kind of their high schools. So I want to stay on that for just a moment, then I'm going to go over to Dr. Scott. So let's talk a little bit about that. Why is it that some schools are just, I mean, what did you find in your review and in preparation of the report? And I had the privilege of actually reviewing it before I went to press. But why is it that we're not seeing states wanting to implement these types of requirements within their curricula? Just just curious about that. I'm sure our listeners are as well. So maybe Mike can jump in here as well, but one of the key reasons is teachers and teachers that are prepared to offer to teach computer science courses and the shortages that we have in that particular area, as well as in others. Yeah, that's right. We see from from what we can tell, looking at the, the policy implementation, we see a lot of interest in doing a lot. And and it's very evident that in the last five years, there's been a lot of policy action that has been adopted across states, though it's hard to actually put those policies into practice if you don't have those resources like teachers. And many states are starting to develop stronger teacher preparation programs in their colleges of education, for example, to try to increase the pipeline there. But but basically, this I, I guess it's worth... Um, taking a step back and just contextualizing this, um, trying to roll out computer science and trying to increase access to it and even trying to create universal access to computer science education. This is kind of a unique trajectory among academic disciplines. Of course, all the other academic disciplines, you know, your math, your your English, your uh, science, your social studies, they've kind of been core for a very, very long time. But computer science is one that we are trying to introduce into, into learning for many students. And it's something that, you know, we have to try to find time in the schedule. We have to create standards onto what are expected um, across each grade level. And there are organizations out there that are helping states to adopt those standards, that are helping to train teachers to put them in schools, but it is something that it is a constrained process. And, you know, we're trying to build up the pipeline over time. No, I appreciate that because, you know, as a policymaker, Mike, you know, we always hear, well, we want computer science for all. It's important to have this, right? Because we have all of these disparities when it comes to STEM and we have even, you know, more exposed kids not actually filling the vacancies that we have in these professions. So I was curious, like, why is it, this is just so tough to do, but I get it. I mean, constraints are an issue. And Kim, bringing you into this conversation, you know, there's something in the report that really struck me, which said that if we give students access, particularly those that come from vulnerable populations, that you actually create some level of parity when it comes to tech jobs. But you've been doing this a long time, and I would love for you to kind of give folks on the practical level what you've seen as well when it comes to trying to bring more diversity and inclusion to the computer science field in general, but more so getting, because in your center you deal with women and girls, getting girls or young, you know, boys of color to actually take this on, you know, as something that they want to do, which, which might drive some of the demand, I guess, you know? Absolutely. And I want to respond to the word that you said that makes a red flag in my mind go up is access. You know, it's one thing to have access and be quote unquote allowed in the door. It's another thing to be invited to participate and be remunerated at the same level as others who've come in through the door, the window and underneath the door. I want to also take a step back and just share, and to Mike's point, contextualize this, this issue of 
access? Because I think a lot of times we misname what the issue is and coming from an intersectional lens, if we don't recognize the complexity of the issue, in this case, access, we're not going to really be able to pursue more or less implement any any resolutions. And so if we look at the National Center for Science and Edu- Engineering Statistics, they released in 2000, the 2019 um, report. And in the report, it talks about women, minorities, and persons with disabilities in science and engineering. And one of the things that they point out is that if we look at 2016, it says women continue to hold a majority of the degrees in psychology, about 75%. And that women tended to hold a majority of biological science degrees at all levels. So, you know, BA, master's, and PhD. And that was about 50%. And so on one hand, you think, oh my goodness, we're doing so much better. However, let's use time as one of the variables that a lot of times we researchers forget. So what I mean by that is in the past two decades, the share of women receiving bachelor's in math and science has actually declined. And then if we look at the topic of the hour, computer science, the number of women receiving computer science degrees has also declined. But, you know, for me, and I think for many of us, when we hear the word women, just like when we hear the word access, it's troubling my mind automatically goes to which women. And normally when we use the word women, we are grouping individuals, ignoring their race, ethnicity, immigration status, sexual orientation, language, and so many other identity markers. And so if we start to include some of those other identity markers to uncover the reality of what's going on with computer science, we get some important nuanced information that I think we need to recognize in order to offer solutions, more or less policy. So, you know, for instance, we know that women of color, particularly African-American Black women, When it comes to computer science, there has been a precipitous decline in terms of computer science earning of degrees and then actually entering and persisting in computer science-related fields. And we can talk more as to why. But I I caution your listeners and, and all of the researchers in really thinking about which women and which vulnerable groups we're talking about and thinking about the potential of using an intersectional lens to ask those important questions of disparity and access. Yeah, and I don't know, uh, Mike, do you want to kind of respond to that or Nico based on some of the findings in your report? Because I think, you know, we're kind of getting at what I read in, in, in the report. It's like some of the tension, right, when it comes to trying to align policies that make this inclusive but also trying to figure out ways in which we also address some of the longstanding, you know, his systemic inequalities that have kept certain groups out of this. Yeah, let me hop in here. To Kimberly's point, she is exactly right on 
in that it is historical lack of access or lack of invitation or welcoming to those people who are in the field that have been behind employment inequalities and wage inequalities. And of course, we know that tech fields and computer science, these are high paying jobs. And if people of color, if women are not participating in these jobs at the same rates as whites or men, then um, they are going to have systematically lower access to those opportunities. So I just want to validate Kimberly's point. Now, of course, it is these historical inequalities that have been motivating a lot of the the interest in adopting these computer science policies across. And so many states recognize that if we just sort of go about the status quo, then we're probably just going to see the exact same patterns that we've had historically. And so the theory is that by introducing computer science in earlier grades, we introduce these kids to what it means to be um what it means to think computationally, how to, you know, how to use computers, how computers are shaping our, our world and society, that by providing kids these opportunities to learn about this early on, and that by using technology in instruction and in normal everyday instruction, then they will be better positioned to integrate technology into their learning as they go into college and as they enter the workforce. Of course, right now, that's still sort of the aspiration we don't have, you know, it, we're still sort of developing the evidence base to connect the dots between access and narrowing those gaps in uh, employment and wage outcomes that we do care about. But that's essentially where we're hoping to go. And Nico does have a few, has prepared a few stats looking at some of the demographics on test taking that we could pull on. Nico? Yeah, let me just jump in here. So within the AP computer science courses that are offered. We have computer science principles and computer science A. Computer science principles is more fundamental. It's like an introduction to the field. And though students in that course may design an app or a program, there really isn't any coding there. Whereas with computer science A, the students do develop uh, some competency in coding. And with that in mind, the largest disparities that we see are in this computer science A course, the more rigorous course of the two, with under 20% of the test takers are Black or Latino, whereas this statistic in computer science principles is just under 30%. And something similar happens across, uh, across the sexes. So we have 25% of the test takers in computer science A are female versus 33% in computer science principles. And though it, there is no parity in neither of the courses, that parity is closer within the more introductory course. We can see this in a positive light, as in students that take computer science principles are more likely to then take computer science when it's offered. But we also know that students but that's not all students. And we also know that computer science A, the students that pursue it, are then more likely to pursue a STEM major in college. So to have an impact of these on these disparities that we see in college outcomes and in the labor force, we have to try and get computer science A to more schools. And as Mike said, expose the kids early so they develop interest and then 
can build those skills so they're ready for when these more rigorous courses come around in high school. Yeah. And I, you know, you know, Kim, I'm coming down your lane, right? Because for years you've worked on the gender issues when it comes to women and and girls coming into these spaces. I always share the story about how I tried to get my daughter when she was like in third grade into science, technology, engineering, and math. I put her in a robotics class. She was really excited about it because she played, you know, Legos and robotic stuff with her brother She wanted to quit when she found out she was the only girl in the class. She was like, I'm not going back. I'm not. (laughs) And I think from that point, it just sort of deterred her from going into any science related course. I call her my left brain kid, right? She's all about writing and other things. And, and Kim, you know, we met each other many, many years ago when you were doing Copy Girls, kind of to address some of the gender disparities. And your work has evolved, I think, along these lines of what are the barriers to entry, you know, structurally, and then what are the barriers to entry when it comes to some of the cultural nuances of expectations of various populations coming into these fields? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. You know, you remind me, Nicole, of a a true story in implementing CompuGirl. So CompuGirl is my center's flagship program. And we have started the first cohort in 2006. And the intent of the program has always been, it continues to be, how do we provide access to opportunities and resources so that um, in particular girls, but also male allies can become what I call technosocial change agents. And so what I've argued over the years, and I'm thankful that the book CompuGirls finally was released last October, is it's important for girls to have the technical skills. And I think this speaks to the point that Mike and Nico said, it's incredibly important to have access, particularly in the early grades, to computer science A. Absolutely, they should learn what it means to uh, think computationally. In fact, what are the computational thinking principles? But I've argued that in addition, and particularly for women and women from under-resourced communities and socially uh, uh, disadvantaged contexts, they need power skills. They need to know how to collaborate, how to use technology, manipulate it in a way to advance their community. So it's not simply how to use technology to place myself as a cog in the wheel, to reinforce hierarchy, but how to ensure my community advances in a way that we can't even envision. So quick story. We do CompuGirls mainly as an after-school program. And we had the good um, fortune of doing a program twice during a spring break in a, a really economically stressed community. And each of the courses for CompuGirls varies in terms of what technology we're focusing on. Sometimes it's very basic and how to create a digital story. Sometimes it's how to build in a virtual world. Sometimes it's human-centered robotics. Sometimes it's social programmable robots. It depends, right? And we have programs from Hawaii to Ireland. This particular case, we had one week, it was all girls, and it was robotics. 
And the girls really loved it. And I observed and they were really hands on. They physically took up a lot of space and they they said they felt really safe. And we did teach them some coding and they they really ran with it exuded such pride and excitement when they were thinking about how to use their robots to, for instance, resolve issues around drought. Second week, it's a co-ed week, boys and girls. Some of the same girls came back the second week. And, you know, again, I went in to observe. And these same girls that showed such leadership, such confidence, such self-efficacy week one, by week two, they were literally on the margins. They put themselves away from the boys. And so I went up to them and said, what's going on? I saw you last week just, you know, commandeering the space. And they said, no, miss, we've got to let the boys play. They had not only self-muted themselves, but marginalized themselves because, not because they didn't understand, but because they had this idea that they should not be allowed the same type of access as their male counterparts. So when we think about access and we think about equity, I I just want to include that. You know, Kim, that is such a poignant issue that you're bringing up. And I think that that's kind of what I read, Mike and Nico, in the report, right? That there are these barriers that exist that in policy speak are really the ways in which we measure success in this field. Is that about right, Mike? Like what I'm feeling from the report and, you know, things like AP testing, as well as, you know, other criteria become some of the challenges when policymakers are trying to implement CS education for all, in addition to enrollment demographics. Like you talk a little bit about that in the report as well, whether it's, you know, people of color, or women or otherwise. Talk to us a little bit about that. Like how do enrollment demographics tie in with test results, creating these barriers? How do we look at passing data and how you know people perform along demographics? Because I, I want us to stay in this space, but I also want us, before we get off this conversation, to really help our listeners understand why we are just still struggling to do this. We know we have to, right? But we keep struggling to do this. So let's talk about enrollment demographics and passing data. Yeah. So to Kimberly's point, those are real challenges that are happening in the classroom that happen with instruction. And the ideal is that we train teachers to identify uh, students who are sitting on the sidelines and help them to participate. But as Kimberly highlights, like these are social norms that we've developed where the girls are sort of yielding that space to the boys when they don't necessarily have to, but they've just sort of been sort of socialized and expected that that's sort of where the boys are playing. But now taking a step back, when we're looking at it from a policy lens, we can't really see that level of of granularity within the data. So we don't really know what's happening in classrooms. But um, when, but instead, from the policy perspective, we are looking at things like participation. So for this particular report, we're looking at participation in the AP computer science tests. And then we also look at passing rates. And one of the things that we that we do see, um, just a few moments ago, we talked about the different types of of the AP computer science tests. We have the AP computer science A, which is sort of the the more capstone test, and the AP computer science principles, which is the more fundamental one. And the that more fundamental one that has um, 
that has narrower sex-based participation gaps and also narrower race-based participation gaps but compared to the computer science A. But there is some encouraging news in that as as these new as these tests have been introduced and over the last few years as we've increased access there does appear to be some narrowing in the passing rate on on both the computer science A and the computer science principles exams and those those gaps are narrowing and really they've shrunk to essentially zero at least among you know comparing boys and girls men and women if you will and there is still a a a race based passing rate gap that persists but it has narrowed and and the way it is narrowed is that white and asian students have more or less you know kind of stayed at the same level as they were but black and latino test takers they have pretty significantly increased their passing rates over the last 5 years or so which is very positive news and so overall it does appear that increasing access is helping but in terms of a policy perspective it's hard to say that it's those policies that are helping to lead to these outcomes in terms of the gap narrowing what we were able to look at is that when we were looking at the changes that are happening in state policies and looking at how those have impacted participation, we do see a clear positive correlation there, but we don't really see that same kind of uh, positive association with narrowing gaps. I mean, they, they do appear to be sort of happening simultaneously, but the link with the policy doesn't, isn't as evident in our analyses. Yeah, I saw that. And I was actually like you, there was encouraging news in your report about, and and Kim, I think you can attest to this too. Once you're in it, you're in it, right? If you take an AP, a computer science class and you do well, it it appears that the data begins to narrow in terms of those students who are on that trajectory. Now we know that, you know, black girls of color and black girls and black boys who are not exposed to science technology at very early ages, as we're talking about, And even in college, like the first year of college, the data tells us that they're not going to pursue those areas. Nico, I want to bring you in on just the test-taking side of it. Are there other demographic differences that we're missing based on rural versus urban or, you know, generational, the things that we should be paying attention to as well? So we've been seeing quite a few geographic differences, not necessarily between rural and urban, but between states. So on one hand, we have states with high taking rates, like Maryland, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Hawaii. These have a relatively high percentage of their students that are taking an APCS exam. But then within this metric, when we look at the growth of the proportion of Black and Latino students that are taking a CSAP exam, there's a very big difference west of the Mississippi and east of the Mississippi. So participation of minorities in APCS has grown quite a bit to the east of the Mississippi, but to the west of the Mississippi, with a few exceptions, like Nevada, this growth has been quite a bit slower. And to just also touch on a little, a point on, on the data to, to look at this stuff from the policy level, it's, there isn't much on the early grades. So a lot of the reports that come out looking at computer science in in elementary, they're survey-based. There isn't solid administrative data that we can easily access as researchers to start peeling apart these disparities in the early grades more at a more granular level. 
Now, before we start wrapping up, I do want to go, Dr. Scott, back to you because you've mentioned your new book. I'm so proud of you. Copy Girls, How Girls of Color Find and Define Themselves in the Digital Age. You make the argument, and I think this is such an interesting conversation. I just want to jump out of my seat and just like be in the same room with all of you, right? Because you make the argument like we've got to start at this space of care and really translating the digital experience for vulnerable populations or kids who may not necessarily understand the importance of a STEM career or a computer science career. But not all these kids have access to technology. And in some cases, they may not have the role models or the mentors. How do you marry that for policymakers who sort of miss that? Just much like Nico said, there's not a lot of data on early pipeline, but I also assume there's not a lot of data on these other social supports that actually drive the type of demand that we need to see in this country. Well, thank you, Nicole, for the shout out. The book was really a labor of love. It took about a decade to for me to write it. So I too am very happy that it's out. I, you know, in answer to your question, there is such a need for, you're right, more data at the early stages. And when I say early stages, I'm thinking about downstream pre-middle school. And we do have data, though, at middle school. So, for instance, the Women of Color and Computing Collaborative, which was a collaborative that my center partnered with KPOR Center, and we got to grant 16 projects to do work specifically on women of color, girls of color, and uh, tech. We One of the projects that we supported, which was run by Capital, Catherine Regal Crum, she did a longitudinal study of over 1,100 African-American and Latinx students in the Southwest. And what she looked at was how stereotypical views of scientists influenced or not particularly predicted intentions to major in computer science. So long story short, what she found is that girls of color, it you know, and she didn't have boys, in this sample, but girls of color held the most counter stereotypical views about science and scientists. And so one of the implications of that in terms of policymakers is how can we provide images of scientists engaged in real non-stereotypical work? How can we as policymakers, or rather how can policymakers, since I'm not one, invest in STEM curricula and materials that reflect a holistic view of science? How can we shift resources to attract and retain more STEM teachers? And then to the point that both Matt and Nico have made, offer advanced courses. You know, so that's one point. I think another thing is most recently the National Academies released a, a consensus report, Transforming Trajectories for Women of Color in Tech, just released. 2022 is the date. And it's there that there are some really clear policy recommendations based on the data clearly illustrate what some of those structural constraints are at K-12 all the way up to the workforce. And so that's one thing that I would hope policymakers are paying careful attention to. And then lastly, if we look at what happens, workforce, right? And we should be grateful that some companies uh, such as Apple and Google and Intel are releasing data. um, And that's encouraging. 
but it's still depressing. You know, Apple and Dell report that only three and 4% of their employees are African-American or, or black. And then if we look at Facebook, Google, Intel, Microsoft, Yahoo, LinkedIn, 1% of their employees are black women. Black women. And that's not obviously proportionate to the population. So I say all of this is because there are resources out there very recently that give clear direction to policymakers and I and they're based on research. And so I really hope that this is a point in time to pay attention to those recommendations and implement them. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, look, all three of you are spot on. This is a very complicated challenge that we have before us, but there are some, you know, bits and bites you get it, bits and bites that are out there <laughs> that policymakers can grab onto. And I want to kind of wrap up this conversation, you know, and go back to Michael and Nic- Nicholas who have written this paper. And, you know, Dr. Scott, I want you just to chime in towards the end. So what are your thoughts on this national strategy? You guys give some recommendations in the paper, which you can share, but what should we be doing that can make this more coherent going forward? Should we be focusing on the computer science curricula and just really getting states on board? Should we try to develop these ecosystems? We just love to hear what you think is like that one big, you know, thing that we need to be advising legislators and other policymakers who are trying to advance computer science education. So maybe I can jump in here for um, a quick second, then Mike can take over. So I, I, I'm, this this big challenge a part of it i see i see a part of it playing out in three interconnected issues so on one hand we want to give students a chance to develop the interest early and to slowly peel apart these gender norms that sometimes hold some groups back so to do that we want to increase access to computer science courses in elementary and in secondary but you have to staff these courses like we've touched upon before and if you're a student studying cs in college and you have the decision to be a teacher or go into the tech sector and contribute if if you if you're if you belong to one of these underrepresented groups contribute to reducing the gaps that Kimberly was mentioning it's unfair to ask that person hey well go go be a teacher you're going to be earning less but you're going to be contributing to computer science and we also know that when we have race matching between students and teachers, they perform better. So how to incentivize people to become computer science teachers? And we can go through scholarships or debt for forgiveness or just directly through the salary schedules, but to kind of nudge people towards becoming a computer science teacher as opposed to going into the tech sector and getting those high paying jobs. You know, it's, it's, you can't ask people to do that unless you're willing to compensate appropriately to reduce the opportunity cost a little. That's right. That's right. Michael? Yeah. So I'll hop in and just add a little bit more nuance to Nico's statements about the shortage of teacher talent in these fields. What many people don't know is that whenever we talk about teacher shortages, we're talking about shortages in STEM fields, because STEM fields are the primary places where, you know, we have hard vacancies to fill. And then also special ed, but, you know, that's sort of a a different conversation for a different day. But STEM is really the area where we don't have 
the uh, teacher capacity where schools are really struggling to uh, get that talent in there. And there are places and programs that are trying to increase the teacher pipeline through some of those things that Nico just mentioned. So loan forgiveness policies or scholarship types of programs to help uh, pay for tuition while kids are, while kids, these young adults are in college and getting their teacher training. And so these are great programs that are um, serving important functions, but I would say that we're just not doing enough. And so I, I just want to to highlight that we need to be doing more to really increase our uh, pipeline of teachers coming into the profession. I also want to underscore the point of doing this with a lens towards diversity, because we do know that race matching is important, that having role models in computer science or in other STEM fields, we know that these exposures to teachers are meaningful, that they help students reconceptualize who they can be and what they can do in the future. And we need those people in these schools exposed to these young students of color so that they can help you know, re reconceptualize their future workforces. Also, as we think about race matching and diversity in the field, we don't necessarily always have to limit it to the formal teacher as well. We can bring in people on career days. We could think of a robotics team and getting somebody to help with the robotics team. There are there are communities that are adjacent to schools and extracurricular activities that we can draw upon and bring those people in and just um, try to promote that sort of ecosystem of participation around the school and do that with a lens towards gender and race diversity to help break down these socialized norms that we've developed in these tech fields. Because, because if we are going to increase access, we need to start early in helping to rewrite what success in this field looks like. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, there's so much, look, we can go for another hour on this. And I know, Dr. Scott, you're not a policymaker, but uh, in case you have a quick soundbite you want to share, please open up and to the floor. Sure. I'll just say quickly, ecosystem approach is necessary. Yes. And what I mean about that is one, broadband access. Thank God for the recently announced connectivity program where there's no cost, high speed access to the internet. That's a, a step in the right direction. Two, I think more research needs to be funded that uses an intersectional uh, analysis so that it's not simply looking at race or gender, but both. And then three, private-public partnerships, ensuring that the private sector is consistently dialoguing with an accountability system with the public sector so that we can resolve these issues. You know... I'm not going to take a decade, Kim, to get my book out. I'm just telling you right now. <laughs> it is on the U.S. Digital Divide. Michael has a book that just came out. I'm next, okay? But it didn't take a decade, maybe about half a decade, but not a full decade, okay? Don't, don't foremost, jinx yourself, Nicole. <laughs> I know, right? Exactly. <laughs> I thought it was going to be three years. So I know. I th tell me about it. And I know Mr. Biden is going to write my book for me before I actually get it done. Yeah. <laughs> um, listen, everybody, I want to say thank you to Michael Hansen, Nicholas Urbino, and Kimberly Scott 
very interesting conversation on the future of computer science education here in the United States with many more questions, I think, that we have than answers going forward. You can find the report that we've referenced on the Brookings website at the Brown Center, and you can find the book that Dr. Scott talked about on the Amazon website or where local books are sold. This is Tech Tank, where we take very hard issues and we transition them from bites to bits so people like you can dig right into them. Thank you all for joining us today. We really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.